Welcome to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I unlock the mysteries of the beatific vision of God. This is the ancient yet ever-present path of discovering your inner freedom and unlimited potential to achieve your goals now. Check the episode description for a link to the podcast page at logosofexperienceandtruth.com where you can navigate this episode with time-stamped show notes. Let us begin. Welcome back to these discussions of the Logos of Experience and Truth. If you're listening to this after having completed the episode of The Image of God, I'm sure you either have questions or have seen, felt, or contemplated for yourself the various apparent truths or realities or even possibly contradictory statements you can make regarding seeing yourself in this eternally unique manner. Before we speak about them, I am obviously aware of that which you've probably seen and understood, but I simply wanted you to bathe in the concepts and ideas within the meditation itself before we discussed further and more in depth the statements that were made in order to penetrate deeply not only the knowledge of the self or what know thyself today is capable of revealing, but also seeing how it was seen by our ancestors. The most obvious statement that can be made, and that which is most interesting about experiencing this knowledge of the self, is that, though you are entirely unique in the manner in which I spoke, it also means that every single other human being experiences their existence in exactly the same manner. So though we are entirely unique in this life as we are, so too is everybody else, and thus, we are both eternally different from one another, but also eternally the same and are bonded together through this experience called being human. I know many philosophers across the ages have spoken of the conclusion that this leads to, just as all have felt it at least at some point in their lives during a moment of self-reflection, that feeling of disconnectedness, of apartness, of separateness, of aloneness, when considering this reality of our entirely unique and simultaneously entirely individual experience of existence that occurs in the confines of our own singular mind. That's why it's quite an interesting statement when you're scolded during the teenage years as not being the center of the universe when, well, in your own mind, in each of our own individual mind, you actually are the center of your universe, your own universe in your own individual mind. Again, through this understanding of the self, you can hopefully start to see why some of the ideas that existed throughout history, existed throughout history. The earth being at the center of the universe comes to mind since, well, from the vantage point inside of our own consciousness, at the seat of the self, this world, the world in our mind, is the center of the universe, and all else circumnavigates around us in the external world from this point of view. So it's very interesting that this simple exercise of knowledge of the self shows how and why our ancestors thought of themselves, their world, and the placement of both as the focal point of existence between earth and heaven itself. This is most likely one of the reasons why, when emerging from the point of view of one's own self-created, mentally constructed world within the seat of the individual self, we are the focal point of heaven and earth regardless of what any astronomical science may say regarding the external world or universe. From within each of our own individual minds, we are each at the center of our own mental universe. But of course, this is also why togetherness with others is so important. 
a family unit, friends, and whatever other social groups that we choose to become part of, since it creates that atmosphere where, though alone in the mind, we are together in the body. Even as we are together in the body, yet we remain alone in our mind. Even though we may share our bodies with another in the vocation of marriage and the deliciousness of sex, there still remains the individual within that temporary experience of combining togetherness. Just as though another's point of view may enter into our individual mind and influence it even, yet this sharing of thoughts and ideas still occurs within each individual mind. Again, that strange mystery of mind and soul, merging with, fusing with, existing with and or alongside the body, the physical temple of the soul, the spirit of God. That strange mystery highlighted, exemplified, immortalized for our understanding through the life of Jesus the Christ. This, the greatest of mysteries of the spirit of God dwelling among humans, as human and God simultaneously. And again, if we are made in the image of God as we have seen, one of the ways in which we are, then we are like Jesus in this manner of our existence as well. For Jesus frequently says in the Gospels that we are like him, or that we will be like him, sons of the Father, through him and in him, with the Father. What's interesting is that even though this occurs in our mind, heart, and soul, yet this occurs in our mind, heart, and soul while we dwell within these physical bodies. And the mystery and question of why only deepens with this understanding. Was physicality needed in order to experience or learn this about ourselves and of God? Could we not experience God or the divine or understand this knowledge of the self without physical bodies? These are interesting metaphysical and cosmological questions that arise when we reach these understandings regarding know thyself while treading upon the narrow path. As stated prior, considering the mystery of the Logos, the word entering into physical form, there's a very interesting correlation to that and the raising of the body to the status that it now enjoys in Christ himself through his ascension. I imagine this is another of the reasons why Gnosticism was frowned upon by the church in the 3rd to 5th centuries. Many, if not all of the Gnostic texts repeatedly frown upon the body, call it a prison within a false and denigrated world, and that one must abandon this tomb of the body in order to escape the realm of the false god and return to the realm of the true god. It's also why many of the Gnostics were very fond of St. Paul's writings, since he has some of the same type of speech in his writings as well, where he's literally wishing for death to enter into the kingdom, but that while still here, alive, he must work, etc. Very similar sentiments, and again, Another of the ways we can understand an ancient group of people and the thoughts and ideas they left behind like the Gnostics as well as the decisions of the church fathers in antiquity. Because even though the Gnostic texts were deemed heresy back then, if we look at why the Gnostics revered St. Paul in comparison to their own texts having been found at Nag Hammadi, we can see that the same language and ideas in the Gnostic texts are still in fact found in St. Paul and that perhaps Mystically speaking, especially since St. Paul had one of the documented mystical experiences in the New Testament post-Jesus Christ, it makes sense that he would speak about dying and death and being in the kingdom of heaven since he most certainly understood what it meant having had his powerful vision and conversion experience that literally, not just figuratively, literally caused him to be spiritually reborn in the light of Christ. 
Now, I'm not disagreeing with the various methods in which St. Paul has been preached. I'm only stating that there is deep, deep mystical talk in his work as well. Now, when you think about it, this Gnosticism stuff is not that different from the concept of anatma, or no soul, found in Buddhism, or really any religious order that practices self-mortification, denial of the self in the quest for this, the freedom from the self, or freedom from the soul in the Buddhist sense, or freedom from the false body and counterfeit soul or spirit, as written in the Gnostic texts. So we encounter another paradox, or a possible difficulty in understanding several of the things we've spoken about in the Western traditions versus the Eastern traditions, especially Buddhism. If knowledge of God is also knowledge of self in Christianity, and that this self is made in the image of Christ, the Logos, and by extension, somehow united to and with Christ, then how and or why does this seem to contrast both with that generalized paraphrasing of Gnostic thought or with the concept of anatma or no soul or no self in the noble truths of Buddhism. If all have essentially the same goal, the dissolution of the self, since what else is spiritual rebirth in the orthodox presentation than dying to oneself and being reborn anew in Christ, though obviously in the Buddhist sense there is no longer birth and by extension nothing being reborn when nirvana is reached, or is there paradox? Or is there actual division and not just apparent division between the teachings of the different religions? Again, remember my stance on this from when I spoke regarding that the church teaches that in a mysterious way, truth exists in other religions, but that also in a mysterious way, fulfillment of this truth is found in Christ. That's at least the Christian viewpoint. Obviously, a member of another religion isn't going to agree to that, but as a Christian, as a Catholic, as one that questions endlessly, I simply wasn't satisfied with only believing in this, but in knowing why this is so. This apparent division, of course, exists on the surface without a doubt, but as I stated in the very first episode, that which is seen and experienced in the mystical experience is and has been one and the same, or at least is and has been depicted as one and the same thing through the exact same image or the exact same mental representation that the mind has made of the experience across all cultures, all times, all peoples, as the mental image created of what is or what has been seen during the mystical experience. So regardless of theological concepts, there has to be continuity regarding reaching this experience even if each individual that tries to describe it and the religions that arise after them discuss the aftermath of the experience differently. As I stated prior, in my opinion, the correct way to view the Gnostic texts are as mystical texts, not theology, not religious doctrine or dogma as the church provides, but as mystical texts meant to take you somewhere, to achieve an end, to reach a goal here and now and not just at death the goal that they called gnosis, or inner special knowledge that gives release from this existence in this Gnostically viewed false world and false god and entrance into the real world. Now, in essence, this goal of gnosis is actually no different than the goal of gnosis in the orthodox traditions. It's just viewed in a different way, and obviously with the differentiation regarding false world, false god, because in the Abrahamic traditions, God made the world and said it is good not false or evil, 
and in the elevation of the body by Christ, it only confirms this in the beliefs of the Catholic or Christian that subscribes to the Nicene Creed. If the body is as utterly unique as the mind or soul is, then it too bears the imprint of the Lord, as has been stated in our having been made in the image of God. This couldn't happen if the world wasn't good to begin with. So there must be deeper meaning and deeper understanding regarding this denial of self that the Gnostics sought, and that it appears the Buddha taught as well through the concept of anatma, no soul, no self. It appears that what the Buddha taught originally at least, since I can't speak to everything that has come after the original teachings, but from my comparison, the Buddha sought the same goal as the Gnostics to show the way to the experience of enlightenment or nirvana or gnosis that breaks the wheel and cycle of birth, death, and rebirth or release from this existence within the false world and entrance into the real world of truth. And yet, wrapped up within the entirety of these teachings, or the teachings about the reaching of the goal itself, or the understanding of which, is the long march through the desert of the soul, the denial of self, seeing the body as a prison, seeking release from this, denying one's soul. Each of these concepts denote or speak of the experience of going through the desert of the soul. They are all explaining the exact same spiritual period or phase or process of how to reach the goal of the mystical experience. And just like I said regarding why I disagree with Descartes, that we don't just vanish from existence if we stop thinking, and thus I am, therefore I think, is the truer way of denoting or proclaiming our existence, in like manner as creation being image to the creator and the name of God within the Tetragrammaton, so, too, the various mystical experiences within the traditions of the West never say that the self, after its denial during the desert of the soul, isn't given, retrieved fully, granted, given in blessing and gift, etc., once the goal is reached. Quite the opposite. The self, or the idea of the self, must simply be purged during the purging period, but once it has been purged during the purging period and the goal has been reached, the self is reborn reformulated, renewed, redeemed, resurrected from the dead. Again, since the textual scholar or historian isn't going to fully understand these aspects of the Gnostic text, this giving back of the true self, the true or the true spirit, as spoken of in the Gnostic text, Zostrianos comes to mind mainly because it was when I reached this text in the Nagamati library when I finally concluded that these were all mystical texts, speaking of the various stages of the path, in weird and symbolic ways, and the author of Zostriano speaks of receiving a portion of the renewed or true spirit or the fullness of his spirit, and I think there were a couple other texts that spoke in the same manner off the top of my head. If one doesn't understand the mystical path, its stages, or its phases, then it's incredibly difficult to understand just what the heck these Gnostic texts are talking about, since one text may refer to the negation of self towards the mystical experience, where another is explaining in poetic or allegorical form the receiving of the new self, the true self. But self-negation doesn't actually lead to self-annihilation, it leads to the renewed self, or as Christianity has come to call it, spiritual rebirth. But there is still paradox between Christianity and Buddhism towards the reaching of the attainment of the goal. Or is there one path of self-negation, one path of the raising of the self to divine status? Considering the imagery that both cultures have produced denoting the experience, the goal is the same. I'm trying to remember the exact phraseology from a Buddhist story I remember of when asked what enlightenment is like, the Buddha held up a lotus flower. 
and only one of his students understood what it meant. I've already given the West's comparable image in the rose. Where is it found? It is the celestial image that Dante describes at the end of his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. But it is the same image for enlightenment, even if it's dressed in different clothing. Thus, one is the path of the positive attitude or acceptance of the idea of self. The other is the negation or negative attitude of the rejection of the self. But if we use the Hermetist teaching again, easily laid out in the Kebalion of polarity, both ideas lead to the goal since they are still on the same rope or chain of the same idea of self. The only way the idea of no self stands is if there's the idea of a self to compare to, just as the only way the self can be denied is if one can see self-denial and accept the idea of no self. One contrasts with the other, but they are both rooted in the same idea. The idea of self is itself that which is without self. How we view the idea is that which creates duality within the knowledge of good and evil, which itself is the symbol for duality in the mind being born at some mythical point, and this is why one cannot reach the goal only seeing the self without self-denial, and neither can it be reached through self-denial only without acceptance of the self or the idea of the self in some way. So at least in my opinion, there is no contradiction between at least the steps of the path of the Buddhist mystic versus a Christian mystic. It's just that Christianity goes beyond just the experience of enlightenment or nirvana. It goes beyond that and into the experiences of the self, being with the Son, and together being with the Father, and I am in you, and you are in me, and all of that kind of language. But for the Christian, for me, the experience of enlightenment or nirvana was the experience of knowing thyself, thy true self, truth itself, since Christ says that he is truth itself, and that I was within, part of, and alongside the throne of Christ as a kneeling disciple. And if the Buddha said that truth is nirvana, then for the Christian, experiencing Christ is experiencing truth, is experiencing nirvana, and experiencing nirvana is experiencing Christ. And that is when our discipleship as Christians truly begins. As a caveat to everything I've just spoken, again, please take what I've said regarding other religions with a grain of salt. I haven't studied Buddhism in quite some time, the same as I said regarding Islam. What it is, is that because of the actual mystical experiences I've had, and seeing and recognizing finally the symbol that the mind creates to denote the experience itself as the same symbolic visual representation depicted in all religions throughout all time, my mind is continuously trying to see the commonalities along the path, again in adherence to what the church has stated regarding this mystery of converging truths in other religions finding their fulfillment in Christ, since there has to be commonalities if the same goal of seeing and experiencing truth is the goal. Though I studied the other faiths greatly in the past, I've been more focused on the emergence of Christianity and the pagan world responses to it during the early centuries leading up to Constantine to try and understand how the religion just sort of swallowed up the religions of the past and why mainly to answer that elephant in the room question of did it happen solely because of Constantine's push 
Or was that simply the final stage of the message of Christianity, assimilating the ideas of the past into its renewed and now fulfilled idea in the present, that is, the past back then during that time period, and being now transmitted to a thinker and seeker of the mystical wisdom like myself across the millennia? Hopefully you will understand further once we dive deeper into each of the experiences I've had. Moving forward and returning to some of the other possible ideas, questions, or truths that may have arisen from the meditation on the knowledge of the self, I have a note here to myself regarding the gospel line of how God sees us as so important as to know the number of hairs on our heads. And I always wondered why God would have cared about our hair, or at least why Jesus would have used that comparison. Well, this sort of answers that. The hair on my head, on each of our head, is our hair and our hair alone. Though everybody else has their own hair as well, yet even our hair is uniquely unique upon each of us. And perhaps this was another of those little nuggets of dive deeper statements Christ spoke so that neurotics like me would ponder if there was any deeper meaning. A second note I have to myself is that this knowledge of the self and being able to see how this self is the reflection or image of God answers another gospel statement along with what I've mentioned prior of how many of the saints have spoken of seeing God in others, or Mother Teresa saying how she saw the face of God on the poor. So this answers that question of how, with the gospel story of when Christ says that when you feed the poor and clothe the naked, that you do so to him as well. This is that deeper meaning to that text. What's interesting, though, is the fact that God sees his image, us, as himself in some manner, which is very comforting. Because when you get deeper and deeper into the desert of the soul and those feelings of, I can't remember who wrote it, that sentiment and feeling of what is man that you, O God, would care and go to such lengths to redeem us, the image of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep again, why does the shepherd leave the ninety-nine to find the one missing? That great and deep abiding love, if you can feel this importance that God has for each and every one of us, for you. Now this leads to the next and possibly greatest of questions or statements regarding the understanding of the self, our self, our soul, as being made in the image of God. As I stated previously, I know that such thoughts, ideas, meditations may not be easy to see or understand or accept if one is suffering, in a state of suffering, or enduring intense amounts of suffering, whether self-inflicted or caused by another. The why is this allowed if we are made in the image of God question, of course, comes to mind. I can't answer that question in any greater manner than I have attempted to by conjecture over and against the things I've already spoken about. And it either comforts you or not when you read the gospel that says that God knows how many hairs you have on your head and thus surely knows all that you experience, even if it is suffering. But you and I are no different than Jesus was in his mortal life. We're different from Jesus Christ, Jesus the Logos, the eternal word, the mind of God, and yet exactly the same as humans made in his image. For just as Jesus' life was uniquely unique, so too are the lives of each and every one of us uniquely unique. And he was tortured and crucified. So the God of Christianity, Son of God, at one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, is not without direct knowledge and understanding of suffering to the greatest degree as a mortal being. For some that may or may not be comforting anymore in this day and age, but to the apostles, for some reason it was. 
What's interesting regarding the true faith that I had to find while traversing through the desert of the soul, purging away my reliance on my awakening experience as the basis of my faith, is what that quest for true faith led me to see as the basis for my faith. It wasn't theology, wasn't cosmological questions and the answers to them, philosophical rhetoric and dialogues and discourses, none of that actually. It was the response from the apostles, and truly that which the entire faith and religion hangs upon and clings to. As a man, and as I imagine all men at some point, perhaps increasingly less in this feminist movement day and age, but most men imagine themselves as being heroic at some point in their lives. And though the reasons for that heroism may vary from age to age, man to man, and for women of course, I'm not leaving the heroism out of the experiences females go through, I'm just stating the obvious that I can't know fully what that is since I'm a man. But at the root core of this is the root question of what would I be willing to die for if the need arose. And the truth is that for all the imagining, or play fighting as children, fights in the schoolyard, unless you're a first responder, police officer, or in the military and put in that situation, one never really knows how they'll react until such a scenario happens. I'll give you an unrelated example, but one that is still kind of on the same road as what I'm talking about. I used to drive a Camaro back in the day, and I remember it had just rained, and they say that the first rain of the season is the worst since it loosens up and wets all the oil spills and stains on the asphalt road and makes them incredibly slick. So I made a left turn, and the street I turned onto was an older street. It had that parabola shape to it where the edges at the sidewalk are bowed and curved from the years of water erosion or whatever the heck causes that. Anyways, I made a left turn right after this light rain I just described and my passenger rear wheel simply lifted up off the road, I guess. Being a rear wheel drive vehicle, I instantly went into a skid, so much so that I was almost perpendicular. Turned the steering wheel into the skid just like I'd been taught four to five years prior in driver's ed class, and it instantly swung me into the opposite direction, onto the oncoming traffic on the other side of the two-way road. I turned the wheel again into the skid and leveled out, and was back on the road and direction I was supposed to be on, and it was as if nothing had occurred. It wasn't until I stopped at the next red light that I was even able to process what the heck had happened and was like, oh crap, finally at that point once I stopped. Now what does this have to do with Jesus and the apostles? Up until the Garden of Gethsemane, the apostles' journey must have been like following any other hippie guru at that time, or even like in our time. Cool, happy words, some interesting mystical stuff, knowledge of the scriptures, hereto unknown, again, since peasants from the countryside probably wouldn't have known much more than what was taught on the Sabbath in the synagogue, since they were almost certainly illiterate, the feeling of self-worth from having others associate you as a follower of Jesus from Nazareth, that miracle worker and exorcist, the attention from the people in neighboring towns, it was probably all fine and dandy. And then the authorities come for Jesus. And what happened? Why, the party was over for the apostles. Adios, Jesus of Nazareth. It was fun while it lasted, but I ain't getting arrested and dying alongside you. And they fled and left Jesus to experience his passion alone. I guess the beloved apostle, most usually seen as John, at least he went to the crucifixion alongside Mary. 
But that was it. So think about that. Not a single one of them was willing to go to the cross alongside their master, their friend, as they abandoned Jesus to his fate. That moment that I was just talking about came, and they ran. But tradition tells us that every single one of them afterwards, after a particular event, at the very least were no longer afraid of the consequences that would befall them from talking about Jesus and his message. And then if we go higher up than that, they walk the earth to spread his message. Even if we say that the story of the apostles is more legendary and meant to denote that there were disciples that spread the message, though we don't really know all their names beyond Peter, James, and John, since they're the ones most prominently mentioned in the gospel accounts. And then if we go even further up in the traditional sense, that it's almost certain that every last one of them was martyred for their belief in Christ, even if we don't really know for certain, considering the persecutions that we do know for a fact occurred. Now, if we remain in the traditional sense that the apostles were who they were reported to be within the gospel accounts, what could have possibly changed their mental state, attitude, perception regarding death and the fear of it after already having chosen not to follow Jesus into his passion and torture and death? They had already shown their qualities, the truth of their actions, through their reaction of abandoning Jesus. Now we return to that question posed earlier that exists within each of us, of what would change our mind regarding running into a burning building to save a loved one, or pushing someone away from an oncoming vehicle or something of that nature. This very personal question, with a very personal answer that again, until one is put to the test, does one truly know how they will react? So that change, that transition that the apostles underwent, that spiritual rebirth from fear of death to knowing that death had been conquered, is what convinces me of what they saw and witnessed, that which has been transmitted down through the faith and across the millennia, that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven in that great mystery of the physical resurrection of the body. And though in time, as I will explain, regarding what I've experienced mystically, everything that Jesus goes through can be seen and interpreted allegorically as the narrow path of the mystic, that gateway into experiencing Gnosis. But if you've truly had the spiritual rebirth, have been bathed in the fire of the Holy Spirit, not only does the physical incarnation of the Son of God in a virgin suddenly become more than just possible in the physical, in the body, due to peculiar experiences, sensations, and feelings that occur in the body when this occurs, becoming far more than just allegory. But then if that suddenly becomes more than just faith, but possibly real, so too then does the truth and reality of his resurrection from the dead and rising into heaven become much more than just a simple tale in a simple text from long ago. I will leave you with those thoughts to ponder upon. Until next time. Thank you for listening. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. 
I have close to a thousand pictures at logosofexperienceandtruth.com under the vision section that show what is perceived by the human mind during a mystical experience. Every culture across the entirety of time has depicted the experience with the same foundational pattern, including science in modernity. Click the link in the episode description or search for logosofexperienceandtruth.com so you can see for yourself and confirm or refute my claims. Please share this podcast with those that are like-minded and click a like on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you again.